Good morning. If you would take your Bible and be turning to Matthew chapter 6, we'll begin there in just a moment. Matthew chapter 6. Again, we're grateful so much for your attendance this morning and the opportunity to encourage each other, not only in our worship here, but certainly in our time of fellowship. As always, we invite you to stay as long as you can through the rest of the day. In the afternoons, we enjoy time together. I always try to take a moment usually and thank the men who have led us in our service. Appreciate Brian leading us in our singing and our thoughts there. Appreciate Travis and his prayer. Appreciate Keith and his thoughts. Keith leaned over to me right as we were about to begin, and he said, I get about 20 minutes, don't I, to do the, do the Lord's Supper? And I said, that's fine. I'll just deduct it out of my time. But we often emphasize Robert and, and appreciate his emotion and those who, who lead us, but all of our men who take time to, to guide us in our thoughts. Um, as we've said a lot of times, we see the emphasis in the New Testament church on the Lord's Supper, on coming together to partake in that. And unfortunately, we have made a bit of a habit probably to rush through it, to allow it to be something that happens very quickly and even almost individually in such a way that we don't think about communing with our Lord. And so we appreciate all of our men who take time and take a few moments to encourage us to think about different passages and things as we think about the death of Jesus. You know, quite often, it's for me, it's feast or famine when it comes to sermon topics and ideas. Sometimes I'll be struggling, you know, to think a few weeks out and try to maybe have a bit of a plan. I usually try to plan the year sort of at the beginning of the year. At other times, there's so many things I want to get to that we don't have time to get to them all. I think, oh, well, I'll do this and this and then I'll do that. But then I realize that's two months later by the time we get through maybe a series. And so I struggle with that. As, as you know, sometimes... Uh, in the spring, since we have been here and started doing Lads to Leaders, I'll usually spend about a month or so around the time of the test for our young people in the Bible Bowl, and as well as they're preparing for the competition at the convention on the book or books that they're studying. So in a couple of weeks, we'll begin a, a really brief look at Ezra and Nehemiah here in the auditorium. I think that's a benefit to them as they're preparing. It also helps them as we as a congregation think about what they're thinking about and studying those particular things. I've got several topics that I'd like for us to get to, and that's not counting that we started the Sunday School Catch-Up Series, and we, we still need to get to some of those, so I've kind of been in that, that phase of, of having too much to get to, and I feel like it's going to take a while. But I had been requested that we think, uh, been requested that we think about prayer, and what I'd like for us to do is begin this morning what I, I'm calling a three-part series on prayer. This morning, we're going to take a look at our attitude, if you will, a little bit about some of our thoughts as we go through that. Then we're going to think about actions. Next Sunday morning, God be willing, we're going to think about our actions in prayer. And then next Sunday afternoon, I'd like for us to consider some answers. Now, I hope you know me by now to know that I know I don't have all the answers when it comes to prayer. But what I certainly mean is we may take a look at some questions and answers, some that have kind of already been submitted. I guess I'll crack the door open there. If you've got any, maybe you'd like to suggest we'll try to get to them that afternoon. This afternoon, we're going to have our singing service, our fifth Sunday singing service, so we'll take a break there. But next Sunday, come back and talk about not only some of our actions, but also maybe some answers to some questions that you might have as we think and try to think a little deeper about prayer. As we often mention when it comes to scripture, <clears throat> excuse me, and what God would have us to do, it benefits us to think about what not to do. Because sometimes we see what some people have done, and we should avoid that. Even as we've emphasized in our Sunday School Catch-Up series that the Old Testament is there for our learning. And so much of what it's there for in our learning is what not to do. 
and how the children of Israel often failed and turned their backs on God and other people, even the faithful people, right? Like Abraham and Moses, who are heroes of faith, did things that they shouldn't have done. What not to do? When we look at Scripture, and in particular the New Testament, we see several of those in what Jesus says, beginning first of all in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 5, but as you open there, if you already have down through verse 15, you'll see what some people, most people, often call the Lord's Prayer. Can I suggest to you that maybe a better way is the model prayer? What it is, as we see even in Luke, that the apostles will see Jesus praying and say, Lord, teach us how to pray. Teach us. Show us what to do. And so in a similar instance here, although this is one straight sermon, as we call it, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives them a model to prayer, though. And he tells them some things. Now, what people usually talk about is they begin in verse number 9, right? In this manner, therefore pray. But when Jesus is giving an example of how to pray, he actually backs up to verse number 5 and begins to give some instructions on prayer. We're going to notice three things. The first one is the hypocrites. He says, don't be like the hypocrites because they pray that they may be seen by men. To be seen by people, that's what they're after. The hypocrites were praying on the street corners. They were praying in the synagogues so that they could be seen by other people. How do you know that? First of all, Jesus tells us here, in our Sunday class, in the, uh, the young adult slash college kind of class that we've been having, we were looking at James. We've been looking at James, and in James we were talking about judging this morning, even as Jesus is going to do in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1. But the Bible doesn't say that we are not allowed to judge at all, but that we can make a righteous judgment. We can judge based upon somebody's actions. Jesus says, you'll know these people because they're, they're praying and you only see them praying probably on the street corner or in the synagogue. That's the only place they're doing it because they're doing it to be seen by men. These people, their purpose in prayer was to receive the recognition of men. In fact, Jesus is going to go so far in verse number six is to say, but you, when you pray, go into a private room. Now, this brings up a question that we're, this is kind of one of those questions, and I do intend to get to it in more detail, maybe next Sunday afternoon, God be willing, again. But the question then is, is, is it wrong to pray in public? Is Travis wrong for what he did just a few moments ago in standing here and leading us in prayer in a public way? And most of you know the answer, and you say, well, no, we scoff. We say, that's obviously not the case. Well, why, why is that? Jesus here is condemning them because they're praying in public. But, of course, he is a judger of hearts. And we often can be a judger of hearts when we simply can tell by someone's spirit, their attitude, and also by their actions a little bit, that they're doing it only to be seen by men. Jesus continues by saying that people who pray for this reason have their reward. They'll get what's coming to them, so to speak. Not by us, not because we're the perfect judge, but because God is, Jesus is, and they know that these hypocrites are, being, are, are praying to be seen by men. What's your attitude in prayer? Don't be like the hypocrites. Don't do it to be seen by men. Number two, don't be like the Gentiles. Jesus also teaches in verse number seven that we're not to pray like the Gentiles. 
Now, some of you are glancing down at your Bible, and you may see the word heathens. This is kind of, depending on the version, some call them heathens, some say Gentiles. But what were the Gentiles, or the heathen, doing wrong? Well, Jesus tells us. They're praying with vain repetitions, and they're making lengthy prayers. So once again, let's go back. We'll pick on Travis. Everybody likes to pick on Travis. Did I have my timer here on the front row trying to judge if Travis went one minute and 46 seconds? That's good. But if he went two minutes and one second, that's too long? Absolutely not. Certainly not. It's not about a number that is one minute, two minutes, three minutes, or however long we might determine. We might decide. Jesus speaks about that as well. Now we're getting into man's tradition. You're making a judgment and saying, well, it can only be three minutes or under. Again, even as Keith kind of joked, well, I've got 20 minutes, right? Well, no, because yes, we have an idea that we come together for about an hour, but nobody's judging each particular thing on a standard of, well, that's too short or that's too long. But at the same time, the heathens, the Gentiles were notorious for making long prayers, believing this would make God listen to their prayers. Jesus taught that it's not about the lengthiness of the prayer. He also taught that we should not pray with these empty phrases or vain repetitions. The heathen thought they would be heard if they pray these repetitions. Now again, let me invite you back next Sunday afternoon. We would like to talk about some of those things. There may be some times that we repeat our prayers if Travis says the same thing, or again, any man says the same thing in the same prayer, is that vain repetition? Most of us would say, well, of course not. Okay, but we're making a judgment somewhere along the way here. Jesus is teaching that there is no formula. There is no particular word formula that is going to force God to listen to what we are saying. There is no key phrase that once you utter those words you unlock the power of prayer and God and now he's listening whereas before until you said the magical phrase he was not listening don't pray like the hypocrites don't pray like the heathen or the gentiles there's one more and you've got to turn over to Luke chapter 18 to read this one we're going to speak about Luke 18 a couple of times this morning in particular but in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, Jesus talks about the Pharisees. You know, he liked to talk about those Pharisees, those hypocrites, and others who were doing these things that were against the will of God. In Luke 18, beginning in verse 9, he really sets the stage, or Luke does, by recording for us by inspiration. Also, Jesus spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. So what he says then is this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. One would have been righteous in their eyes and one would have been degraded. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. Prayed thus with himself. When we think about these Pharisees, they are praying, again, kind of the idea is to be seen. They're praying on the street corner. They're praying at the synagogue. They're praying so that others can hear. Once again, you're at a restaurant. 
Someone is praying. You're praying with your family. The next table overhears you. Are you then wrong or sinning because someone hears you praying? I would suggest no. I don't think that's it. Unless you stand, maybe raise your arms in a similar sense to what is explained of this Pharisee. And someone might say, boy, that man is praying with himself. He's praying so that we can hear and see, drawing attention to him. We can make a judgment about that sometimes. Jesus warns about our attitude. Do not be like the hypocrites. Do not be like the heathen or the Gentiles. Do not be like these Pharisees. This is not how you should pray when it comes to your attitude. Now, as I said, one thing we're going to emphasize next Sunday afternoon with some of the questions is the idea of public prayer versus private prayer. Both our public prayer may be in a, a public setting like a restaurant, but even the public setting such as in front of people like here, our men who lead public prayer in our services, or even you ladies for at times in Bible class or ladies' days or things. What should be some of our thoughts and actions along those lines? Do not do these things. So then, of course, we often beg and say, well, then what can I do? What should I be doing? I'm going to suggest four things to you this morning. You possibly heard something like this before. They're going to spell out the word Acts, A-C-T-S, like the book, Acts of the Apostles. The first one is adoration. Four things very quickly that we can be doing, four attitudes that we should have. Some people might even say that this is the best order. I know that some of our men, Brian and Charles and others, have taught young men kind of classes before. You know, taught our young men how to lead in worship. And this is the kind of thing that we sometimes emphasize with them. When you stand before the congregation, here is a good formula. It is not the formula, as we said just a moment ago. There's not some magical order, but this is maybe a good way to pray. And we're going to talk about why in just a moment. First of all, begin by expressing adoration. God is certainly worthy of our praise and adoration. You know, in some of my studying this week, I came across someone who tried to give the illustration of what if you were going to speak to the president, right? Or someone high up in office like that. It might not, might not even be that. We would have some type of deference even if we were meeting the governor of the state. You know, we might have some kind of submission or humbleness meeting someone who has some authority like that. We might begin not in praising them the same way we would God, but yet honoring them in a way. God is certainly worthy of that. While we can praise God in song, and I enjoy that, we should also praise God in our prayer. There are examples of that. When Paul writes to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, he's writing to those in Ephesus, but he's also going to give appreciation for God. It's, a, it's one of my favorite passages. You may remember verses 20 and 21 in particular. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we can ask or think, praising God in the middle of the, this encouragement, this epistle, Paul stops to give adoration to God. David does as well in multiple examples in the Old Testament. But giving adoration for him, it's a great place to start. When you hear someone lead us in prayer, in this corporate, we say sometimes, corporate setting, do they not sometimes begin with, Dear God, we thank you. 
and praise you for who you are and what you've done. Adoration to him is a good place to start. This may not be the same pattern or example that we sometimes give, but it's certainly a good mnemonic device to help us remember. What about confession? Confession. Confessing our sins. You begin to see here the attitude of humility. There is mercy to be found in confessing one's sins. We know that John tells us in 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, that the Christian enjoys cleansing of sin by the blood of Jesus. So we talk about that and we mention that. Sometimes it's at the end of our prayers, and that's okay too. Someone might say, forgive us of the sins that we've committed. But also sometimes it might be good to begin towards the front, coming to God almost in a cleansing type of way. God, please remove anything from my life. Please forgive me. In a general sense, yes. Quite often in a specific sense. I'm thankful when our men sometimes pray, Father, forgive us for our sins. I know their attitude is not one of, of being irreverent or not doing, some, doing something that's not right. But I don't think they can ask for forgiveness for me and me continue on in that sin and me be okay. I need to confess my sins sometimes before God in a private way, maybe sometimes in a public way. You know, Jesus provided this as an example in Luke chapter 18 there that we read just a few moments ago in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Is that not what the publican or the tax collector was saying? And again, one of the most beautiful, beautiful Psalms, Psalm 51, David acknowledging his sin with Bathsheba and more that he had committed there. Beautiful, beautiful Psalm about what's going on with him and his confession Obtaining forgiveness by confessing sins is a blessing that's now enjoyed only through Christ. Once we have put on Christ, prayer is crucial to remaining forgiven. So maybe number three we might say here, thanksgiving. We can offer thanksgiving. We sometimes forget to do that. Maybe most often for us, prayer is usually a means of request. We'll get there in a second. It's a means of request. God, I'm coming to you because I need you. Oh, we need him. Oh, we need to bring things in prayer to him. But we should also offer thanksgiving. Again, sometimes that's where we lack. I appreciate most of, the, I mean, most of our, all of our men here who try to do that. If we forget, it's just from time to time. But we can get caught up so often in bringing our request of those we need to pray for, we, we forget to stop and give thanksgiving. I meant to say it at the beginning, but I'm thankful that Frank is here this morning. Frank told me that he's not ready to join the kickball team yet. All right, Gabe, you can't put him on the kickball team yet. But Frank is one who we prayed for. And there are many others here, don't get me wrong. But there are many others here who we pray to get better. And we need to stop and give thanksgiving when they do, when they are. It's not always the case. Sometimes we pray so long for someone and they still pass away, as we all will unless the Lord returns. But let us stop and give thanksgiving for the way that we have been blessed. If you missed it, last Sunday afternoon, we talked about the song, Count Your Blessings. Ask the question, have you ever counted your blessings? Have you ever sat down and written out every blessing? And I said, I think the answer is no. How long would that prayer be if we actually enumerated every single one of our blessings that we could think of? 
Again, it's not about lengthy prayer. I'm not suggesting you have to pray for three hours and list everything. But we need to remember to offer thanksgiving to God. We cannot discount the importance of thanksgiving in our prayers, especially if we expect God to answer our prayers in the future. Which brings us to the fourth word there, as you see Acts on the left-hand side, but it's supplication. By the way, this is not wrong. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4 and verse number 6 that we are encouraged to let our requests be made known to God. What does he say? Be anxious for nothing. How does that happen? How, how is it that we are not anxious about things? Because we let our requests be made known to God. Because we know that we are praying to the one who can cause anything to happen. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, but he certainly can. We go to him in supplication. We are commanded. Again, Paul, 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Do it. It's something that should be done. Ask of God. Make supplication, but certainly don't forget these other things as well. What is our attitude? I look at all of these things, and even in particular in the order, and I see an attitude of humility. I see an attitude of bowing. Somebody might say, one of the questions we could consider is, do you have to close your eyes? Do you have to bow your head? All right? Is somebody wrong if their eyes are open? And we can pick out all these hypotheticals sometimes that we want to quibble about. I would suggest, as I think Jesus does, it's about somebody's heart. Closing our eyes, bowing our heads is often a sign of humility of bowing before the throne of God, approaching a God. Even as if we came upon the president or someone again in that kind of authority, we would probably almost naturally sort of bow, right? Sort of duck down and just say, oh, you know, whoever it might be, addressing them as a higher authority than us in that kind of power. We would do that. It would come natural. But yet sometimes with God, we might in a way sort of say, well, I don't need to do that. You know, I... People who want to refer in prayer as if God is their, their grandfather or their best friend. You know, hey buddy kind of thing. I, I don't know if you've ever heard anybody say that. I don't know that I have, but it's that attitude of I can just come to God like a pal and make these requests. We are approaching the throne of God in prayer. May we be humble. May we show humility in adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and in supplication. One of the great things about prayer is that we can see in Scripture examples. I was thinking about this just a moment ago. Brian mentioned how important it is. But do you know how often prayer is mentioned? We're going to do our best here in the last few moments we have to look at some examples. Not only should what should we avoid and what should we do, but what do we see? And by see, I mean read and hear in Scripture from people. Number one, Jesus gives us an example of persistence, does he not? In Luke chapter 11, as he is speaking about the parable of the persistent friend, and by the way, this is the occasion, if you're turning over there, in Luke chapter 11, where Luke records for us the model prayer. Where Luke records for us, Jesus is praying, and can you imagine, try to imagine watching the Son of God pray? Would you not, as they have done, have said, 
Jesus, show us how to do it. Can you tell us how to pray? So they ask him. He gives them the model prayer in verses 2 through 4, but then he goes right into verses 5 through 8, which is the persistent friend, right? That friend who comes and keeps knocking. These are connected in this passage in Luke. As Jesus teaches them about prayer, he talks about persistence. That parable is easy to understand. What comes after that? I didn't put it on the screen, but you, if you turn there, verses 9 through 13, what's there? Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Jesus says to be persistent. We have already touched on Luke 18, but when Jesus is talking about, he's not so much talking about prayer when we get down to the, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. It is about prayer. These two fellows are praying, but they're also, it's about their attitude, right, to be seen. But go back to Luke 18 and verse 1, and how does this context begin? Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. And what does he tell? We call it the persistent widow. The widow who annoys, bothers, whatever words you want to use, the judge, until the judge finally gives in to get this woman off his case. The persistent widow when we think about prayer and our attitude in prayer we need to be persistent that is what Jesus emphasizes both in Luke 11 when he's praying and in Luke 18 when he's talking about prayer be persistent in prayer you know what Paul says we could probably use the same word persistent Paul says always in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 18, he says, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. I struggled on exactly what to use. Of course, I was naturally trying to find you know, words that start with the same letter or whatever. Like, but, but I could have used continuing. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 12, Paul says, Continuing steadfastly in prayer persistent, consistent, continue, steadfast, always. And of course, we know 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, simple enough, pray without ceasing. Is that our attitude? Is that our attitude? You know, I don't so much miss taking the trip from East Valley Road in Dunlap, Tennessee to Amnicola Highway, right, twice a day. I did that for about 13 years, and it was not always lots of fun. But I do sometimes miss that 45-minute drive by myself, alone in the car, sometimes thinking in prayer. Not always. Sometimes listening to the radio or maybe on the phone or something else. But sometimes, whatever it might be going on, spending a few moments in prayer, praying, going down in that attitude, that spirit of continuing in prayer, mentioning these things to God. As we think about Jesus, as we think about Paul, we also see examples in Scripture, not only from their words, but their lives. Examples. Jesus in the garden is Matthew chapter 26. Do you remember how many times he prays there? That Our kids know it because we talk about it in Bible Bowl. It's that number of three. They give each other, we give each other a hard time sometimes because we're trying to memorize all these facts in Bible Bowl. And when it's a number and the number comes up, they know it's either three or seven or 40, right? One of those biblical numbers. Three times in the garden, Jesus prayed. 
while his closest disciples slept. He's deeply distressed over the suffering that is coming, and he is praying. He is persistent in prayer. He could have been going and trying to do other things. He could have been going and trying to make amends with people if he felt like he needed to talk to people. He could have been going and doing all these other things, making sure affairs were in order. He's persistent in prayer. Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse number 8. How many times? Three. Pray three times that the thorn in the flesh might be removed. I would suggest, maybe Paul used it as a specific number, Hard to believe that he might not have prayed more times for it, that to be removed, if it bothered him so much. But what about the early Christians? In Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, after that great day of Pentecost there, it sees, we see that the church in Jerusalem continued steadfastly, there's that word, continued steadfastly in prayer. I love, love the example of Acts chapter 12, verse 5, and then again in verse number 12. You remember what's happening in Acts chapter 12? Peter is in prison. When Peter was in prison, Acts 12 and verse 5, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. I feel like they were in each other's homes. I feel like they were assembling together wherever they could. I feel like they were praying individually, both at night and in the morning and throughout their day with the same kind of attitude for their brother, Peter, who is in prison. How many times have we done that here? How many times will we continue to do that as long as we have opportunity to pray for one another, both in private prayer and in public prayer? In 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse number 5, widows were assumed to be devoted to prayer. The question is, if the early church needed persistence in prayer, do we not need that as well? What is our attitude towards prayer? We need to have a spirit of humility. We need to have a spirit of humility towards God in adoration and in thanksgiving. We need to have a spirit of humility in coming to the one who can forgive our sins in confession. And yes, we need to bring our request to him so that we can make it through this life, so we can make it through these struggles. We ought to pray always, continually, steadfastly. I hope this morning that is your attitude. God be willing, we'll be back together next Sunday. We'll consider some actions and maybe some answers as we think deeper about prayer. This morning, as we get ready to conclude this lesson, though, we are about to sing this song of encouragement that we could encourage you if you're here this morning and you're not a child of God. You see, one of the questions that we've examined before, I did not look back at my old sermon notes or my list of sermons, but I don't remember if it's been a year or two ago now, but we asked the question before, does God hear the prayers of sinners? God hears the prayers for sure of those who come to him and are a part of his body who have been added by him to his church, to the church of Jesus Christ. So we sing at the end of our service this morning to encourage you, if you've never put Christ on in baptism, to do that even today. The greatest decision that one can make here upon this earth. Maybe you've not been obedient to God's simple plan of salvation, and you need to do that this day. 
And as always, we strive to remind you that we will study with you as soon as possible, if we can, to help you understand just how important it is. Maybe you have done that in times past, but you've wandered away. The Bible does not speak of having to be baptized over and over again. The Bible does not speak that the first time you mess up after you're baptized, you're dead, it's over, no, no hope for you, or you're lost and there's nothing you can do about it. We sometimes call it God's second law of pardon. That as a child of God, you can confess your sin to him, repent of that sin, and pray for forgiveness. And he is willing to do just that, that you can again walk in the light as he is in the light, as John talks about there in 1 John chapter 1. If you're here this morning, you're a child of God, but you've wandered away, maybe it's a specific sin, even a public sin that you'd like to make known before the congregation that we can pray with you and for you. Maybe it's just help that you need in times of struggle. We are thankful for that opportunity of prayer. And we're thankful for this moment, even now as we stand together and as we sing.